Blog Talk Radio. Tennis, Mr. Chuck Reese. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to get in the game. Hello, this is Coach Chuck Creasy, and I believe Coach Hagamus, do I have you on the line? Yeah, hey, Coach. How coach, are you? Good to hear your voice. I got you. You know, you know you're not going to believe this. You're not going to believe this, but you will believe it, knowing me. We have been on the air for five minutes here, and I had you on the mute button. Now, what, <laughs> what in the heck is that? I'm, I'm hoping that I can go I back and... You know, that you listen to I the. I inter- gave you my my best stuff. <laughs> you gave it. That's unbelievable. I hope pop, people can hang with this. I I don't know if I can go back and edit that or what, but uh, you know, nowadays you know you can forward fast and stuff, so they'll probably say, "Where in the heck is the meat on this bone?" But anyhow, yeah. I was doing pretty good, man. I was. I thought maybe um, you know something happened to you or something, but. I really apologize. Oh, my gosh. Anyhow, okay. let me do my little okay. intro real quick. Okay, this is Coach Chuck Creasy. we got Dave Hagamus on, on the phone, and he is uh, on the line here on American Tennis. And I always say that <laughs> I always encourage you to stand up, speak out, say what you need to say. Just address issues, not people, and nobody can find fault. Edmund Burke, all that it takes for evil to prosper is for good men to do nothing. We're going to try to address some issues today, but first, Dave, I want to give you a, a little, you know, a little hoopla here. I didn't realize you're in your 18th year, or getting in your 19th year there at MIT. Which one is it? I want to say 18th. 18th. Okay, you don't even know. You're so into it. I okay, uh, 18th year. Okay, it's a blur at this point. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know, I know. Now, you know what? You know what? When I was looking at uh, your background here, the biggest thing I said, man, multi-versatile guy. <clears throat> this guy 
was not a city boy, I don't think, upstate New York. But do you really teach in the P classes? You know, when I first started coaching, I taught seven academic hours. I always had to teach, uh, we call them P classes. They call them, I think, not recreation. You know, they call them skill skill classes or something. I don't know why they call them up. Why do they call them up there with the the, class, the teaching that you do? What's the official yeah. name? Yeah. So at MIT, I mean, it's called physical education, and each student has to take at least four P classes to graduate, or they don't graduate. Oh, that's great. And they have to pass. Yeah, and they have to pass a swim test. So. Oh. You know, I teach about. Yeah, I teach about 10 courses a year. I've actually started a couple courses myself. Uh, I teach everything from skating to hockey to badminton to archery. I do a self-defense class. I do an adventure class. Uh, I just try to keep it – I teach a lot besides tennis. I'll teach tennis once in a while, but I I teach mostly other subjects just for fun. Holy cow. Then I mean no no it's it's really good I I miss that a lot I I used to teach racquetball and I used to teach well, I taught racquetball I taught bowling I think one time back in my grad school days uh, we, you know we used to have to take dance classes we used to have to do all that stuff and that, that gets pretty yeah. good but that's impressive that you do that I used to have to teach again I'd advise students and you know I taught classes I did we did it all. We did it all. We were yeah. now, and I sort of for the first ten years that's the way it was. And then in the D one programs, of course, you went to just coaching. But but that's that's fantastic to know all that. Dave, uh, Dave beside that, you were five time coach of the year. It says two hundred fifty wins now, nineteen straight conference championships. Is that is that right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, they haven't, <laughs> I mean. They haven't, I mean they haven't been they haven't been easy. We've uh, we've squeaked by on uh, on a few of those for sure, including last year. Oh, so, I, I, believe yeah. me, believe me. But here's the thing: there's, I think you ha- you you had a little bit to do also to helping Jay Lapidus nine ACC titles back. There. I remember, you know, uh, we were on the back end of most of those. And all of them, but yeah. one actually. We had, we had a good run in the '80s there, but you guys dominated ACC tennis in the '90s, and uh, yeah. you were. We got one win, I think, in '97, and you were the most gracious, you know, to, that you could ever be. And of course, Jay always was too. But um, yeah. your your journey at from Duke, where you you know you saw all the big you know, the major teams, top 10 teams in the country, all these players are going to go play pros. And now you're in D3. So what I'd like to do is ask you to, to get off to get off and run in here is could you give the people listening, parents, I'm, I'm thinking parents will tune in and a lot of kids, because D3 might be the purest form of tennis out there. We've played a lot of D3 schools since I've been at the Citadel. You know, I mean, yep. Oglethorpe, Washington Lee, Virginia Wesleyan, uh, UT, University of Texas at Dallas, and, you know, a lot of the D3. And it reminds me of coaching in the 80s, Dave. You know, it, yep. it uh, we yep. didn't, don't have any, sorry, me, crap going on. We didn't need referees yep. for my first 10 years. We didn't have referees, Dave. You know, we'd just say yep. when the coach came in, the home coach, was the referee, but every time somebody came to play us at Clemson, I used to say, 
you can be the referee if we have any problems. And you never had problems because it was sportsmanship. But talk about that, if you could, a little bit in your background. After you played D1 at Coastal Carolina, then yep. you you got to coach at Duke all those years. You've been coaching 30 years now when you, when I was looking at this. Holy cow. But, but yeah, that kind of hurts talk to about that, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that's uh, that's – 10, 30 years is about 9,553 practices. I, I figured it out. Yeah. I figured it yeah. out. So any, anyhow, yeah. uh, so talk about that if you could. Just give a background on, uh, you know, I'll tell you what. Could you talk about growing up upstate New York, how you got into tennis, and sort of your journey, and then if you could start talking about uh, D3 and in the contrast and D1, okay, if you can. Yeah. So I'm going to sit back and listen here. Yeah. You know, I I grew up in upstate New York uh, outside of the Albany area and lots of lakes, rivers, mountains, streams, and, you know, grew up fishing most of my life, fly fishing predominantly and um, hiking, camping, et cetera, playing multiple sports. Baseball was really my sport up until I was about 13 years old. I started playing tennis. Right around 10 or 11-ish, uh, you know, with my parents, they both played and just kind of fooling around with them. And, you know, I really wanted to be a baseball player. And, you know, I, I love baseball. I was fairly good at it. But I'm I'm just not a big guy. I'm I'm just not, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty thin guy um, naturally. And um, the other kids were getting bigger and stronger and, you know, hitting the ball a little bit better than I was. Uh, and I started playing tennis. And I was fairly successful at a local level, you know, at a small-time level uh, in my hometown and really gravitated more and more towards tennis as I was going through my teens and decided I would love to play in college. So, you know, took a trip down south. Upstate New York is not the greatest year-round tennis weather. Uh, You know, we do play quite a bit indoors throughout the winter, but thought it would be great to go to school somewhere in the south and looked at a bunch of schools, ended up at Coastal Carolina, which is right outside of Myrtle Beach. And, you know, I was thinking fun and parties and everything that goes with it. And, um, you know, learned pretty quick that those things weren't as important as, you know, really studying and, and playing hard and being part of the team. And I think my last year or two there, we won our conference championship for the first time in a long time. And, you know, it was really uh, special for, for me to be a part of that as a player. And what really kind of made me gravitate towards coaching was just the life lessons that I learned through tennis. Now, at Coastal, it wasn't big-time tennis. We didn't have thousands or hundreds of people even coming out to watch us. But just being on a team, working hard every day, setting goals, learning how to handle successes and failures, uh competing, pushing yourself, making yourself uncomfortable, all those things helped me greatly in life, helped me be successful as a student, helped me be successful as an, you know, an employee or helping other people, et cetera. And I said, you know, I really want to do this. I was a phys ed major, so, uh, you know, that's the direction I was originally going to go. And I said, you know, I just want to be a PE teacher and help kids out and have fun and you know, make kids fitter and athletic and go towards that lifestyle. Um, 
a couple of years after Coastal, maybe one or two, I'd try to play, you know, briefly on the satellite tour back then and quickly learned that I wasn't going to make it. Well, as you a, got as good pretty player. quick if you you started late. I mean, you, 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 what I like, yeah. you started at the park, just like me. I tell people <clears throat> yeah. that Dr. Sid E. Parks was my uh, was my coach, and I, I tell people yeah. I played for the three drugs I got at the park. You want to hear this one? Yeah. Sure. Three drugs. I got dopamine, adrenaline, and endorphins at the park yeah. playing tennis. You know, that yeah. those were the. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't about. I just. You know, you love the sport, but you started at the park. Yeah. But how did you make yeah. such a jump? Did anybody? Did anybody uh, help you out? I mean, parents out there now are spending lots of money, sending their kids yeah. to academies, trying to keep up with the Joneses and everything. But you were upstate yeah. New York. It probably benefited you to not know how hard things were. Is that true yeah. or is so that accurate? Was, yeah, no, I mean, it, exceptionally true. And, you know, I did start late. And, again, if I was going to script a junior player now, say, okay, here's your path to the pro level, it would not have been the level, you know, the script that I took, right, the path I took. We just didn't know any better. We didn't have quality coaching. I had coaches throughout my junior career. But like you, my, when I was 13 or 14, maybe even 12, my mother or father would drop me off at the park at 9 a.m. on their way to work, and they would yeah. pick me up at 4 or 5 p.m. when they were coming home. Same. I, yeah, I just stayed at a, at a public park in Troy, played anybody and everybody from, you know, older guys, yeah. older women, young, younger kids, whatever. We just stayed there all day and played anybody and anyone, um, yeah. which is really great. I mean, it, it was a great experience. It taught me a lot. You know, definitely playing with older players taught you how to behave on the court, how to, you know, play smarter, construct points, et cetera. So, uh, yeah, I, I did the same thing. I, I think when I was about 15, 16, maybe I gravitated more towards, you know, certain coaches that kind of helped me and groomed me. But it was, you know, by then, you know, maybe it was too late for me to really take my game to the higher, you know, the higher national level. So, you know, I was basically just a well But you didn't know any better. But you didn't know any better. I didn't know any better. I didn't know any better. And. You know, yep. in, in a way, it's a blessing. I mean, sometimes I feel bad for kids today. To be successful, you got to focus on one sport early on, get quality coaching, you know, and invest all your eggs in one basket and playing that one sport if you're yep. going to have any yep. kind of chance to play yep. at a high college level or beyond, right? And it's it's tough because they never really just get to play other sports yeah. or, or take it in for fun, you know? Uh, this um, makes me it, want to jump in yeah. here. Okay, Dave, if somebody's told you, okay, uh, Hagamus, your UTR is a 7.6, and you need yeah. to have a 10.9 to be in college right. to play. Yeah. You th- I, yeah. mean, I mean, no, seriously. I mean, there's a saying in coaching that I told somebody recently is that you try to keep fog on top of the mountain till the kids are too yeah. high up to turn back. You never let people know how hard things are. If you do, right. kids, you know, adults want all of the information, but kids, <clears throat> it's, it's, you know, it's it's crazy. But you you kept your light on with the tennis, so you played all the tournaments and stuff. And then, how how exactly did you? What was the connection to Coastal Carolina? By the way, they've got a real good team now, you know. 
<laughs> good yeah, friend yeah. Jody uh, Hyden yeah. went there. Was Jody on your team back then, Jody Hyden? Yeah. So so Jody was my my teammate. He was my teammate, my roommate. Oh my. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and that's how that's how I got into coaching. So, <clears throat> but well, he's, know, I, he's, I his up... story is almost identical. He's from West Virginia. Yeah. He said he went to a school or something that only had like eighteen seniors or something, and he played yeah. every yeah. sport. <laughs> Yep. Oh, wow. Yep. Absolutely, yeah. So, yeah. again, for me, to end up at Coastal, it was really coming from the north um, and just looking for warmer weather and someplace fun to go to school. I wanted to, At that point, I wanted to play tennis and really invest in the tennis and see how far I could go. Coastal seemed like a great place to do that, um, and that's where I met Jody. So Jody was on my team, and, you know, we had a great experience, and, and bunch of other great guys on the team as well after coastal again i you know dabbled playing tournaments and and work in different places and trying to be competitive on the on the satellite circuit didn't pan out and jody at the time was actually working for the women's team at, at duke so i believe the coach he was working for was jane Pryor at the time so i used to yeah. go up there and just practice with them periodically i was still playing quite a bit and and Whenever I went up there, Jane or Jody would say, hey, jump on the court with, you know, so-and-so. And I would hit with a lot of the women on the team there, and it was great. And um, he ended up leaving and going to Clemson uh, the following yeah. year. And he helped me get uh, his position there. So I ended up working for Coach Jeff McDonald, who I believe is at Vanderbilt. I know he's there for some yeah, time. Yeah, he, he, I, I think while, he's but. still – I've got to get him on there. He's done a long yeah. time. So he was on Virginia's team, I can remember back. Yep. Holy cow, yep. back in the late 70s. So what a yep. great yep. career yep. he's had. So. Yeah. yeah, he was a great player. He uh, he did some good things at UVA. And then he came to Duke, and he did some great things at Duke. He ended up going to Vanderbilt. But I was with Jeff for one year. So I was with him for one season. And during that time, Jay and I, uh, Jay Lapidus and I, became pretty good friends and uh, you know, we had some conversations over the summer, and I said, listen, you know, his, his assistant coach had just left, and he said, man, I don't know how to do this, but I would really love to have you come to the men's team. And I was like, you know, i I got to be honest with you. I, I, you know, I'd love to work for you, and um, just you as a person I, you know, honor and respect, and we had a lot of fun, and we had a great chemistry and connection. And anyway, I ended up jumping from the women's team to the men's team, and it worked out well, and I was with Jay for, you know, close to 10 years. Uh, as you know, you know, we won nine out of tremendous yeah. ACC championships. I, I believe, you know, you. I remember your victory and, and your Clemson team, you know, victory at that time that took us out one year, which was awesome. We had an amazing rivalry with, with yourself and Clemson and UNC at the time. We had some amazing rivalries, and you know, well, Wake, uh, Wake was getting better. You know, some yeah. of those schools, you know, the conference has changed, right? So UVA at the time was was a weaker team, but they were getting stronger. And players like Brian Vahaley did an amazing job. And Huntley Austin, I think, came in at some point, and, and they kind of changed that program around. Uh, NC State was getting a little bit better. You know, the, the conference on the whole was – was 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 gaining you know popularity and getting stronger. Georgia Tech had some good teams. Florida State. Um, uh, we had an you know we had an amazing run there. I, I had a 
unbelievable opportunity to not only work with and, and be a part of Jay's program. Uh, we had, you know, so many successful players that come came in and out of there. We got to play, you know, the greatest teams in Division One at the time, the California schools, the Texas schools, the Florida schools, yourself, you know, the ACC, Notre Dame, you know, the list goes on in Illinois, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, it was, it was really an amazing experience. During that time, I got married, had a daughter, um, I had an, an adoptive son who, uh, you know, still has family in that area. So it was tough to, to move on from there. I was kind of stuck in the Raleigh-Durham area for a while. And for me to pursue a Division One coaching experience, it would have had to be a local school at the time. So you're talking uh-huh. NC State, UNC, uh, maybe Wake. So some of these schools weren't opening up. You know, obviously – Coach Paul is still at UNT. We actually talk once in a while, and, you know, he's done some amazing things there. Um, it, it was, As you know, it's very difficult to get a job in the Division One world, very difficult. You know, there's only a few jobs that open up each year. The competition and qualifications of guys going for those jobs are extremely difficult, you know, are, are strong. So it was tough. Um, I had an opportunity. Things changed in – uh, our ability to leave the area. And at that point, you know, as an assistant back then, you weren't making any money. Like, you just weren't making I, I think my initial salary at Duke was about nine. <laughs> it was room, board, and experience. You don't have to tell anybody. It was when we first started out, we got room, board, and experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was yeah. that was the way it was with coaches, yeah. I think I made 9000 I think my, you know, after a few years, I worked my way up to 12000 Possibly yeah. fifteen, and I, and I thought I was—I thought I was the richest guy on the planet. I was like, "Oh my gosh, oh, I'm yeah. rich! I'm making—I'm making twelve grand." Um, so you did it for the love of it, right? You did it for the experience. You did it to to build your resume. Hopefully, parlay that resume into a good opportunity or coaching opportunity down the road. So, eventually, what happened was I had a daughter, had a wife, had a son, and I had an opportunity to do some private coaching in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And it was a, a a private, you know, family who had their own court. They had a, you know, a couple of their kids were playing competitive tournaments, et cetera. And the pay for me at the time was extraordinary. You know, it was like, you know, oh my gosh, that's you know, that's absolutely amazing. My wife could stay home with my children, and you know, we could kind of have a a, a normal life. So. That's the route I chose, and I've got into it about a year, year and a half, and this was a difficult situation at the time. So um, it, it wasn't everything that I imagined it to be, nor did I imagine it would be a long-term commitment. So I quickly was trying to get back into the game of coaching and into college athletics. And, you know, college athletics has a very short memory. Once you leave and your name's no longer circulated around, it's really tough to get back in. It's not an easy yep. jump. Um, unless you're a big-name former pro player, it's tough. And it wasn't easy. So my situation, you know, kind of forced me to, to, to make a quick choice. Uh, Coach Bobby Bayless was at Notre Dame, and he was kind of a – That's what I was you know, thinking, yeah. He that he was yeah. before right before you, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he – 
he was originally at MIT, and Bobby's been a great mentor, you know, to a lot of young coaches, and, and myself yeah. included. So, you know, I used to go to, to him for advice. He was always great about making calls for you, you know, backing you for certain jobs if he felt it was a good fit for you, you know, et cetera. So, anyway, he, I was talking to Bobby one day. I said, hey, did you ever think about MIT? They have their opening right now. He actually coached there at some point years before Notre Dame. Yeah, and he said, listen, I, I didn't even know what D3 schools were. I, you know, I was like, MIT? I was like, uh, I, of course I heard of MIT. I mean, who hasn't? But I didn't know anything about your athletic programs or Division three in general at all. Um, he said, listen, you really need to take a look at this. He said, I think it's one of the best jobs in the country, period. I said, really? He goes, absolutely. He said, take a look at it. So I interviewed for it, ended up getting an offer, and, you know, after some lengthy conversations with different people, I ended up taking the, the position. So I get there at MIT. It's a Division three. You know, it's, it's, it's a different world from Division one, and yeah. Well, the thing the is, though, I'm thinking of, I would hate to jump. Let me jump in there real quick. But yeah. you'd been at Duke, which was extremely, yeah. you know, high academics, high expectation academics, and a lot of the. Yeah. I, I'm thinking a lot of the students, pretty much, were similar. You know, and uh, I mean that pretty much prepared you. And then you're around Jay Lapidus, you know, yeah. and you understood what winning was about, and the, you know how to motivate them. So. But um, you go ahead and talk about the differences, though, in the D3 and stuff. Yeah, I mean, academically, it was similar. Um, you know, a lot of our athletes at Duke were great guys. Um, they did well, successful, you know, high national-level kids coming out uh, and, and did well in college as well. The kids in MIT are good players and the way I kind of tell my D one friends is that if you took a top twenty five or top, you know, thirty or so division one schools and you took like their maybe their five through seven guys, you know yeah. the bottom yeah. part of the lineup. Those yeah. guys are the best guys in D three. Like it's good tennis. It's really good quality tennis. They might not have the big cannon serves, big, you know, they might not have the big games that the top guys in D1 do, but it's really good, solid tennis. I would equate the best guys in D3 could play five or six for most D1 schools. I would completely D1. agree. Yeah. I'd completely and then, agree. I'd... And then a lot of the D1 programs, the better D1 or D3 programs, could probably beat a lot of D1 schools from, you know, I don't know, maybe, you know, 75 down or even 50 to 75, I think they'd have yeah. their hands full with a lot of D3 schools. Um, they're very deep. They're very strong. You know, these are top-level kids that are being recruited. I mean, you know, if we're getting kids maybe in, in tennis recruiting, if you go that route, you know, maybe 50 to 150. You know, these are good quality kids. Every once in a while we get a kid, you know, in the top 25 or even, you know, a, a rare blue chipper here or there. So it's good, you know, it's, it's high-level tennis. These kids, the difference is between the D1 kids is these kids don't have any desire to play pro or, or really are going that. They're really seeking a balance between academics. Academics, 100% comes first. Athletics, 
is something they've done their whole life. They still want to play athletics. They still want to be part of a team and, you know, maybe win a championship or become an All-American or et cetera. But they've kind of foregone the dreams and fantasies of playing pro tennis. They just want to play for fun. Uh, doesn't mean they don't compete just as hard. You know, no, no. Yeah. no I, let me jump yeah. in real quick there. I yeah. Listen, every match I've had against D3, I think probably in my tenure here, I've already been here 10 years, Dave, you can believe that. But yeah, I, in those 10 years, we've probably played 15 to 20 D3 schools, and I love it. Yeah. It's a great, great yeah. experience. Use traditional yeah. scoring. Nobody, yeah. the sportsmanship was above board. Every kid, I, I can't remember one kid ever tanking, not one. And they just, yeah. they love the sport of tennis. And and I, yeah. it's quite, I hate to say this, but disgusting what is going on in some of the college D1 matches with the no-ad scoring and the, the cheating is, is unbelievable on game points. You know, it, it's over the top because it's an eight-point swing. But uh, contrast that. Talk about D three a little bit. About more, more, talk about it more about your your format and, and your great experiences you, you've had. You've had lots of conference championship teams, and I know you've had um, some close goes. But uh, man, you you've got. I mean, come on. I'm I'm looking here. You. 19 straight conference championships, and then you had nine. You've had tw- – all you've done is win, man, since you've been a coach <laughs> as an assistant. And I, you know, you might have only – maybe we gave you the only loss ever, you know, there at Duke. Yeah. By the way, you know, we when, – when Lapidus – let me tell you just real quick about Lapidus, what I – you know, of course I knew him when he was at Princeton and what kind yeah. of competitor he was. But coaching against them, you know, we never, we did not like losing. You know, it hurt bad. Yeah. We had yeah. some good runs, but then when Lapidus never, ever, ever rubbed it in, he never, ever yeah. was put his own. Um, he never ever put his own billboard out there, and they never flaunted. And that, by the way, that made yeah. it harder to beat beat you guys at Duke because you you just did things in a classy way. And, uh, yeah. you know, so it wasn't like we stopped trying. You know, I, I blamed it on all those stupid rules. That they, they, they wouldn't let us practice anymore after 90, 1992. They put in all those restrictions, shorten the season, shorten practice hours, shorten the – holy cow, we never used to go on the clock. We used to just go to practice and say, hey, we're going to – Leave when we get this right, and that was that was a good way of doing stuff, I think. But anyhow, I just you know my my uh, thanks to you guys for the way you guys always handled everything. And uh, Jay, what what he you know that was it, it was it was you it was bittersweet you know when you'd lose to you guys, bittersweet it, it was. But anyhow. Yeah. Jay, so, Jay did an amazing job. I mean, he was a workhorse. He really emphasized hard work is going to eventually, you know, get you to the to the end and, and, and make you the most successful you can be. He, we also, you know, what you're talking about, we also had many conversations, and this was a conscious decision on our part, is listen, when you win, you put your head down, you shake hands, and you walk off the court. 
if you lose, you put your head down, you shake hands, you walk off the court. And I don't exactly. mean put your head down sulking. You know, you look the person in the eye, but you don't celebrate. You never don't run ever in a victory. Never. never. Because almost 100% of the time, it's going to come back and haunt you. And all you're doing is fueling the fire of your competitors. All you're doing is fueling the fire for them to work twice as hard and do want nothing more to beat you the next time you play. If you yep. take that off the table and you win and you do it with class and, and, and composure, you kind of pull that fire from your, from your competitors. You know, yeah, right. they still want to beat you. Of course they do. But they don't have that extra dig. You, that you never, poke, that you never poke a sleeping bear is what I tell the Amen. guys. You never Amen. poke Amen. a sleeping bear. I said, I don't want my guys. I said, if you win the NCAAs one year, you're allowed to storm the court. I don't want to see any of yeah. that crap. I said, yeah. be, be humble Act like you've done it before. No dances in the end zone. Be like Herschel Walker. Yep. Act like you've done it before. You know. That's right. But uh, you know, so and, you know. And that's it, it, what, it, that's, sorry, I'm sorry. Go. No. No. Go. That's one of the. I mean, you you just hit the nail on the head. If you win, and if you go crazy, like it's the greatest thing that's ever happened in victories. What you're telling your opponent is that you didn't really believe you could win. It was a fluke. Right. You played even above your own expectations. But if you right. win and you walk up very calm and confident, you don't celebrate, and it's like, damn, that kid, he knew he was going to be me. He was confident the whole time. Whether you That's were right. or you weren't, the confidence that it gives you and <laughs> the, the, the look that your opponent's going to have if you just calmly and securely – is going to have more damage on their psyche down the road than if you celebrate. So, um, you know, we've always done that. Uh, it, you know, part of, as part of the 19 championships we've won at MIT. Again, they, they, they haven't been they haven't been easy. All of them. I mean, they've been very no, no. I, that that uh, winning's hard, man. Winning's hard. Yeah, winning's hard. But and, and it's, it's but, hard but come on, everybody's gunning for you. Everybody's okay, so at you. MIT, you've never yeah. lost. Yeah. And then and then here we go at Duke. You win nine at yeah. Duke. Come on, man. You win 28, 29. Holy cow. Yeah. That, but, that ain't bad, you know, Bubba. Like, <laughs> like, like, like you, I, I, hate, I hate to lose. I hate to lose more than I like to win. You know, I got to be honest. Winning, yeah, winning's great. It's fun, whatever. It doesn't excite me, but losing, <laughs> no. man, it hurts. It, I just can't. Every I'm coach. I'm a good loser. <laughs> it hurts for a day and a half, man. It still hurts for a day and a half. Yeah. I'm not but, a good uh, loser. Losing no, no. is way more is, is way it, harder it, than it, than winning. It does. It does. So, yeah. well, listen. Um, I want to move on here a little bit. Yeah. And I and again, just say no comment if you don't want to go there. Um, because, but recently. The ITA, okay, now you got to understand, I was in the room in 1977 in Corpus Christi, Texas, when the dues was $10 a year. We had 36 yeah. coaches in there. And old Coach Dan McGill helped push through the um, no-ad scoring for a one-year trial. It passed right. 19 to 17. One-year trial. Well, we had to yeah. use it for those years in the 80s, and uh, but little by little, listen to subtleties. I had a player named Richard Matichewski, 
who lost oh, yeah. to a guy, I think it was Jeff Claparda. I think it was Claparda. If, if he's listening, I think it's right. He beat Richard O and O out in California, okay. but he lost Richard lost five game point three all games. And then Richard yeah. played him later at the NCAA tournament and won and won a match. Right. You know, and right. we we had uh, Lawson Duncan beat Pern Fours pretty much pretty easy two and two. Lost about a month later at finals NCAA's one and four, and we had there were so many good players. I started going, whoa, that guy, he's had ten losses this year. I didn't realize that he's too good for that. He wouldn't have lost in regular scoring, but anyhow, long story short, a lot of players took hits they shouldn't hit. And then for fifteen years we had Paul Scarpa stood up at a coaches meeting one time and the the three. How we did the three doubles, eight game pro sets, and and uh, full matches and everything, and we got back. I think the USTA actually stepped in. Uh, the former um, head David Mark and stepped in. He said to me one time, "They're not even playing the rules of tennis. This isn't a rule yeah. of tennis. No ad scoring." And so the bo- bottom line on the thing is, they got it out of there for 15 years. But the last 15 years. I've been I've watched this so closely, but we used to have these coaches. I wasn't even coaching before I came back into college coaching, Dave. These coaches, right. uh, they were in meetings and they were sort of plotting about how they could get no ad back. I said, you, you know, guys don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. So you don't want to abbreviate. If you abbreviate, you're not going to get the real winners, and you're going to destroy the fabric of the sport. I've always used a baseball analogy. I say, guys, guys. Still there. How would it be okay. if it's full count in baseball and then that, you only get one more pitch? In other words, right. you either if you don't if you don't get a hit, you go to the dugouts and out. Okay, would that change baseball? It would change the whole dynamic. And there's so much yep. more. But I used to argue these things, and these guys kept pushing, pushing, pushing. And I said, what in the world are they doing? And then, of course, the fiasco of all of the ITA meetings, Dave, that we went to. Um, we voted it down five times in one form or another. But the, the catalyst where they went haywire in basically, I'm going to say the ITA, you hijacked college tennis. That You would not uh-huh. exist, ITA, if it were not for the sweat and the work of college coaches. And it, we would not exist if college coaches would not cave in and side in with your shenanigans what they did. But how they did it was politically the way you do so many things. They they bled it in. First, they got voted down, and the guy who was the head of it, I'm not going to use his name, but he was the head of it. He was an Ivy League guy. But he mm-hmm. basically, after we had a straw vote, was what he called it, but I called it a real vote because we had about 40 coaches there. And it was passed that we stay with traditional scoring because they'd try this two-ad system we called it the, the Bullwinkle system. It was so stupid. you know. And anyhow, uh, when I was on the way home, one of the coaches called me and said, you won't believe they went behind closed doors, and they said, look, we can do whatever we want to do. This was a straw vote. And mm-hmm. you know, so they voted it down, but they pushed and pushed and pushed. So the long story short is I've always wondered, if we had our best players in the world, Dave, if we had Djokovic, Federer, the old old school, Rod Laver and somebody, and they said, we're going to change the scoring system of tennis. Wouldn't we say to them, well, that's pretty arrogant. 
what gives you the right yeah. to change 150 years of tradition? Wouldn't this make every success coming up something we'd have to put an asterisk next to, like a wind-aided win or a this was a, an abbreviated scoring? It cannot be equal if someone wins Wimbledon one day by winning tiebreaker sets or, excuse me, no ad scoring, two out of three sets. It cannot compare to a five-set victory that are the greatest matches in history. Likewise, in tennis, you cannot compare a no-ad victory with those we had that were five-set matches. For example, the uh, I can remember back three out of five sets, Kevin Curran beating Eric Kaskursky, I think, in four sets, you know, there in Kalamazoo, five sets, three set is not the same. So the point being is that I believe they hijacked college tennis, the ITA did, and their goal is this, folks. Listen, if you're a junior tennis parent, their goal is to get college tennis, push it into the juniors, and then in five or six years from now, you know, those players may be in the pros. Hopefully they're not because – most it's international pretty much now, but the, both they get in there, and then they, if they can bleed it in enough, people won't argue. And I've, I, I believe it's done for monetary reasons, and I'm not, that's all I'm going to leave there. I believe it's done for monetary reasons. I believe there could have been quid pro quo going on. They did not. Okay, with that all being said about the overreach and the long battle, Okay, let me ask you this question. Was the hijacking a college tent? Do you think that they're pushing it into D3 for the welfare of your student-athletes? Dave? No. I mean, well, if they are, they're very short-sighted. I mean, here's, the, here's my whole take on the no-end situation. I mean, obviously D1 has, has been doing it for some time, and they keep shortening their format, shortening their format. I think last year I went to watch Harvard and Stanford play at Harvard in Round is maybe 16 or 32 in, of the NCAAs. And, you know, Coach Rube has done an amazing job at Harvard, and they had a great team, and Stanford comes over, and I, I said, man, I'm going to go watch this. You know, Paul Goldstein is now at, at Stanford. I remember competing, you know, against him when I was at Duke. So um, it was really fun for me to watch. I couldn't believe how quickly doubles was over. Now, we play some D1 schools, you know, throughout the year, some local D1 schools, and, and we have a lot of fun with them, and we've done different formats. But I couldn't believe how quickly doubles was over. I mean, no way it's a joke. that was over. It was over in the blink of an eye. And then, you know, the singles – I mean, bottom line for me is I – you know, no way scoring is ruining the game, in, in my opinion. It's ruining the game. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and and to me, you know, I would love to hear more about your incentive, you know, what you're thinking. Maybe maybe you're thinking, you know, DraftKings and, and some of the betting world wants to know. I, I, I am, I am, I am. Yeah, you know, yeah. I am thinking yeah. that way because, Dave, why would people fight for something so abstract? Nobody fights yeah. for 15 well, years in an organized fashion <laughs> to do something that's so abstract. To get it on TV is what they used to say, and my argument was, yeah. well, if you're on TV, we'll do a hokey pokey show, but it's not to get yeah. it on TV. That's a red herring. That was crap. So it's not yeah. for that reason. So I believe there's yeah. something behind it. Wanting their goal, though, Dave, 
their goal is for random results. Where does random results, where do random results, who makes a profit off of random results? Do they want Federer or Nadal winning 11 straight, you know, French Opens? Do, do they want that or do they, would they want something much more random? By the way, look at our sports, our other sports. Football games now, we have games that are 55 to 40 instead of 17 to 14. And in basketball, no ad, uh, sorry, three-point shots, 24 seconds, a run up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. There's no set offenses. There's no baseball. Are they juicing the balls? Are they juicing the balls? I don't. Now, I don't want to, I sure don't want the bad guys coming after me or something like that. But we need to stand up and say something about this because it's crap. What they're doing to the kids in junior tennis, sure enough, in junior tennis now they tell kids, oh, you want to play the college system. Really? That's the college system? You mean it gets to be more polluted and diluted and prostituted? You know, I mean, oh, we're going to play. They play in these junior tournaments where they play one set for the doubles. I mean, what a joke. And in college, it's it's such a joke. Go ahead. Yeah, it is a joke, and, and no, I, you know, I, I played no way myself uh, one or two years when I was at Coastal. I think they tried it back then as an experimental thing. So it's, it's just a different, drastically different game, mentally and and even physically. My, if I come down to like what I really think the true reasons are, and and I'm not saying your reason isn't correct because it very well very well may be, but I think coaches most coaches are sold a lie thinking that a the team that they can never beat now playing no ads going to give them maybe a little bit more of an advantage to beat those better teams i think that's a lie i think it's detrimental absolutely progress as players i also think that they think which is also not true that it's going to be that drastically shorter and they don't want to be out there for three or four hours or whatever a, a match may take. But you know what? My, so they're I'm lazier. Saying You're saying most coaches are lazier? I'm saying I, I, there's a lot of coaches. I, I can that say it. Hey, I'm saying, look, look, yeah, coaches, it's easy way out. Yeah. If you're lazier, you're destroying yeah. the game. But here's – look, Dave, you can remember matches in your career that everybody yeah. remembers matches like uh, 1980 McEnroe Borg. Everybody remembers those five-set great matches, you know, the great Australian Open Finals. Dave, I had a match, a difference maker in high school. I won 8-6-3-6-20-18 in a high school match in 1968. Okay, that was a difference maker for my whole – I remember it 50 years later. And our kids – but if you win no ad, especially with that stupid tiebreaker for the third set, when you win, it's like kissing Aunt Sally. It's not really a kiss. You know, it's like guys win, and it's not a rite of passage. And if you lose, Dave, if you lose, it doesn't hurt enough to where you want you suffer and say, "I got to get better," because it's when you lose in a tough, tough seven five in the third, it's decision time. I either engage and get a little bit better, and tennis would reward you if you did the work. It does not reward you now. So people are taking shortcuts. You know, it doesn't punish you either if you 
lose a tight match. Every breakthrough, John Isner broke through at D.C., won seven, five in the third, six and six, four in the third, and all of a sudden he was on the map. You know, but every player breaks through. They don't break through by winning two and two, no ad. No, no, no player breaks through when they win a tiebreaker for the third, for sure. So, okay, that's um, – go, go ahead. I, I think the um, fundamental – yeah, I think the fundamental flaw that coaches make is that the game was somehow broken and they needed to fix it or change it. The game's not broken. The game is what it is. It's never going to be basketball. It's never going to be over in, in a set period of time. It's not the sport. I've been at Georgia where they've had 5,000 people in the stands barking like bulldogs and with regular scoring and matches taking a long time. And it was, you know, some of the greatest tennis environments I've ever seen. You know, other places have had similar environments. The game is not broken. To think that you can shorten the game to get it on TV and it's going to become basketball or football, it's not. No. It's not going to happen. And that's one fallacy. The second fallacy or the second incentive I think a lot of these coaches have is like, yeah, they just want to get the match over, either get the win or loss and move on and go home. Well, they're in it for the wrong reason. You shouldn't be coaching that. It's not about you Correct. anymore. Once you, you know, one of the greatest lessons I ever learned was actually from you. And, you know, you're talking about Lawson Duncan and Jay Berger and Matichewski and all these great players that you help, you know, have good pro careers. And you've done an amazing, you know, if you look at your record, you know, you could put it on par with any coach that's ever coached college tennis. And I don't know how many people actually realize that, you know, what effect you had on college tennis and what what great players you helped push into, you know, not only great coach playing careers, but also coaching careers. But I was down at, at Clemson one year, and I was at Duke, and we were technically your enemy. I mean, we were a big rival. We were winning. Uh, you didn't want anything to do. I was there visiting Jody, and we were hanging out, and you had this uh, a doctor. I think it was Dr. Bryce Young, if I actually remember correctly. And he was doing a sports psych talk with your team. And you looked outside, and you said, hey, Dave, I want you to come in here. And I said, really? He goes, yeah, I want, you in, I want you to be part of this too. Hey, we're all in this to help the kids and make the kids better. And I tell you what, I never forgot that because you had, these, you had, you had him in there to make your team better and to probably beat us at the time and beat the other schools. And you took the enemy in, me, and you said, you know, I want you to come in here too. You saw the bigger picture. We're in this for the kids. What can we do to make the kids better? Your kids, my kids. Let's make, let's make American tennis or our kids better. And I always kept that philosophy. Coaching should not be about you. It has to be about the kids. You have to put them first. Don't shorten the format. These tournament directors that run these junior tournaments that are so short and abbreviated, it's disgusting. It's not the sport anymore. You're losing kids left and right because they want to collect a paycheck, make money, and then run off and go home. They're it, in it's it terrible. For the wrong reason. What I'm noticing, I went to a junior tournament in Hilton Head a couple of weeks ago. There's no passion yeah. in the kids. Yeah. The, the, the USTA yeah. top-down management is screwed up because Tim Wilkinson made this great statement. He said, kids don't play for points. 
They play for yeah. tournaments of heritage and rivalries. What we've done, right. we've taken those right. away, the rivalries away because of the points, and the tournaments of heritage. I asked the guy, I said, why do we, well, this is uh, level four Southern Blue Group, uh, YM, what, what, what the heck is this event? You know, kids, you know, kids are losing their passion, and it's terrible. Yeah. But, you know, the thing about drawing crowds, too, I believe that was a red herring. Red herring. Yeah. Now, if you think about every sport, Dave, is that football has a national uh, following. You could have University of Texas. Yeah. People will follow it. They will go there. Ba- basketball yeah. has maybe a two-hour regional following. Baseball, yeah. maybe people would drive an hour for a baseball game. But let's face it, any of the minor sports, the non-revenue sports, you've either got to have a parent or somebody that's maybe on campus or somebody within five to ten minutes that's re- local. You know, that, that's yeah. the way it is. But So that's a big red herring. And, and uh, I think that, but that's why I think this whole effort was organized. I really do. And also, early on, I, I talked to a coach who was working for the USTA. I said, what are they doing? He said, oh, don't even right. argue that one, Creasy. It really upset me. He goes, Creasy, don't even argue that one. That that uh, bus has left the station or train has left the station already. It's going to be no ad. Ha, 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 ha. He went like that to me. I go, whoa, he knows something I don't know. Also, when I was on the National Tennis Junior Committee, I, I tried to put some things forward, and there was some opposition. A lot of people understood what we're trying to do, protect the history and the heritage of the game. But some of the higher-ups, there is a – that's why I believe there's an agenda. I believe there's a big brother there or or the, a deep state of tennis that's trying to push this. You know, and, and, yeah, and I, uh, I, I, marketing people. I, Go ahead. Sorry. Go. No, no, you're, you're spot on. And to be honest with you, I've never really been involved in the politics of – of tennis, I kind of just do my job, worry about my kids and you know my conference and et cetera, people teams that we play. But I never really got into to the politics. I did like yourself when I was at Duke, sit in on some of these meetings at the end of the year where coaches are doing straw votes and seeing some amazing things come out of there that are kind of baffling in the sense that. You know, you had a, a really a small sample size of coaches that happen to be typically at these conventions. They typically happen happen to be like at the end, end of the NCAA's when they used to do it in Division One a long time ago. And you, it was basically the top teams dictating what everybody else. Are was you telling me do. it looked fixed? It looked rigged? Are you telling me that? Well, well, I, I think it looked rigged. You know, did it? About, <laughs> they always did. Well. well well, well, we talked about pecking order, right? So what the top teams do, the other coaches kind of follow suit because they think, oh, that must be – they know what they're doing, and we're just going to follow right. suit and go with it because they, they know That's a lot right. more than I do. They so politically – Who am I to question, right? And I think a lot of coaches go along to get along, and it's just not the right way to go. I mean, the majority of the coaches in college, whether it's D1, D2, or D3 – the coaches outside of the top teams really have more power and say than the top school than the top teams. Even though the top teams coaches typically have the loudest voices, the power really is in the masses and the numbers, not the not the tip of the if they're, pyramid. If they're well 
educated to what the thing is the truth. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's the point. These political things, first of all, the ITA hijacked college tennis. They have no right to be pushing all the coaches around. Tell me what the yeah. – look, I work for my school, my conference, and the NCAA. The ITA has no jurisdiction. It has no jurisdiction over your school. So I mean, why 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 are we why are these why are they pushing this forward? Why are the coaches collapsing? Why are the coaches not rebellious? I want to say one last thing. We've got about three minutes here, Dave. Okay. Now, with their push that they've had for the last ten to fifteen years, if it was really a good thing, do you think all of the coaches by now? Don't you think they would have bought into it by now? Said, "Wow, this is really good." Okay, there was a reason why it was pushed out after it was used in the '80s when nobody knew about it. But you know, I mean, coaches would be going, "Whoa, whoa, this is great! This is great for the game." They're not; they're tolerating it at best. Am I right or not? Yeah, they're tolerating it. I would love to know how they truly feel about it. I really would because. Everybody I talk to, person to person, like, you know, I, I think a lot of coaches want the shorter system because they just want to get out of there. They really just want to get out of there and go home. Now, I'm not saying that across the board, just a small sample that I see. The coaches that are really against no ad scoring, and I'm one of them for sure. I have no fear of saying it. I think it's a bad system. I think it's bad for the game of tennis. I think it's bad for the development of our players. I think it's not how the game was designed. It not only changes how they play, but the speed they play, mentally how they, you know, play each point. Everything. Um, yeah, yeah. I, 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 you know, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of it. But I think a lot yeah. of coaches say, hey, if it speeds up the game, everybody has to do it. Let's just do it and get it over with and, and well, get out of here. Well, nobody and understands, you know, you know the, the, the subtle, yeah. the subtleties, though. I mean, it's as simple as – having to win three points in a row. If you don't know how to win three points in a row in regular tennis, which is called a conversion, you'll never be good. If you don't win the first point of the game, you have to win three in a row or four out of five. All right? All, right. All got to do is no add is win one. All right? And All right. think about the, how the, if you get the 31st, if you get 30 love, you have 16 to 1 odds of, of winning that game or having game point. 16, you just got to win one over two, time one over two, time one over two, time one over two. Look at me. I just had a, you know, I, I'm not an MIT guy, and I figured that out. But 30-15 yeah. is an eight to one. 30 to 15 is eight to one. Instead of tying it up, the brilliance of the game is this, Dave. Game point is now going to be an eight-point swing. And people don't understand this, so here's the analogy I use. If at four, well, first of all, at four four, it's easy to see. If you win on a let court, or the cheating's unbelievable, because right. the game point is worth eight. In the old days, nobody would cheat you when it was their own game point to win a game. They'd want to be a cheater to win, but they might cheat right. <laughs> to prevent you from game point. But but the point right. is is if you win and go up five four, you need four. The other person needs twelve. And but at the yeah. first game of the match, the first game of the match, yeah. if you win that game, it's going to take you eight points to overcome the one game lead you would have had to get back. Yeah. So people don't see that, and that's why our traditional scoring is so brilliant. 
That's why and you're able to work on the uh, efficiency of a server. You can take him in no-add scoring. He needs four points, and he's never going to play more than seven points. Could you imagine a pitcher in baseball never having to throw more than six pitches after a full count? Yeah. Never has to throw six yeah. pitches. Six pitches yeah. for most 18 for three outs. Most. You never – and so these things, it's ludicrous. And then that let cord rule – we only did that because there were two players that were pretty good players on high on the national scene, and I'm not going to say their names. They used to cheat every time they got ace. They'd call let. That's ridiculous. Yeah, Instead was, of disciplining was, them, we uh, do that. It's the stupidest thing ever. Yeah, it's I just, was actually it's, part of the. I was in the meeting when they took a vote on that, and and talking to the coaches, I was in the D1 world at the time. That was the impetus behind the no, the no let rule. Was that guys were cheating. On a big serve, <laughs> an ace, and they, all, they, all they had to do was say let. And I don't think a lot of people understand the history of that, why that rule was implemented. But that was, no, that was no. the initial push of why that rule was implemented. The yep. other reason that yep. I think coaches back the no-ed the no ed, um, design is that they think it gives them a little bit of an advantage against the better teams, right? It says, hey, you know, maybe we get one more break of serve. Maybe it's easier to break. They think it's going to allow them to get one upset, a little bit of an advantage or a greater advantage to get an upset against a top team or a better team that they're typically yeah. not beating. And I yeah. think a lot of coaches are falling prey to that, like, hey, it might help us a little bit, give us that little bit of an advantage that we can beat some of these teams that I we're typically agree. not beating. But, again, I, at, I would, detriment, I would at the detriment of the players – you know, learning the game and playing the game the way it should be played. So, again, they're putting their wins, you know, or potential wins over what's best for the players in the long run. Yeah, I, you know how the ridiculous I, I part of it. The ridiculous part, I, this is very quick, and I'm going to leave that because we only got about 45 seconds. But if you were playing basketball, folks out there, listen, what if a missed shot counted 16 points in basketball? Would that be ridiculous? Okay, here's where I'm going with this. We have the only sport that when you miss a ball, okay, I get the point. In basketball, could you imagine? I'd like to try that basketball coaching someday. My team, if you miss, it'd clean up shot selection, that's for sure, instead of the stupid stuff we see in the NBA. But anyhow, yeah. uh, let's. could you imagine you miss, the other team gets the point. That's a two points, that's a four-point swing. But make it an eight-point swing. When the red light goes on, it's an eight-point swing. It's, 16-point swing. That's what you're talking about. Yeah. It's ludicrous. Yeah. An eight-point swing yeah. in tennis is ludicrous on a let cord, cheating, uh, luck, whatever. Tennis would always even out because you got to beat a person by two. You know, so, yeah. anyhow, Dave, right. Dave, one last, uh, yeah. I'm going to give you the last word there, man. It's about time to go, but any anything yeah. else? you you got just thank you. Thank you for the friendship. Thank you for all you do for young people, and keep up the good fight, man. Battle this stuff. Yeah, I, yeah, I appreciate Chuck, and you know you've done so much for me throughout my career, and just learning from you and being able to compete against you and other great coaches in the game has, uh, you know, just gave me incredible insight on what it takes to develop the player and put the player first, put their development first, what they learn on the team and competing and how they can use those lessons in life is the greatest thing for, for athletics and sports. That should be the greatest focus and goal. Um, yep. 
with, well, without that, a man, doubt. The best of luck. And, yeah. With great chatting with you. Hey, 28 conference championships. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Love it. Hey, yeah, God well, bless you, man. You take care of your family. Hey, give my best to Jay when you talk to him, and I'll say hi to Jody for you. And, uh, you know, keep up the battle, man. Okay? Yeah, we'll see you. God bless. Bye-bye. Bye. That's about it, folks. We will here see you next time. You're in the process of winning or losing every day of life, and has very little to do with a win or a loss. So Chuck It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.